Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Lakewood, California. Lakewood is a suburb in Los Angeles County. It is known for what was considered to be a daring housing experiment and community building that began after World War II. On the first day of sales, March 24, 1950, an estimated 30,000 people lined up to walk through a row of seven model homes. For the next three years, a new house was completed every seven and a half minutes. Empty lima bean fields became 17,500 homes in fewer than three years. And most importantly, it was the home of the very first Denny's restaurant, for those of you familiar with the Grand Slam breakfast. But in 2001, when a prominent member of the Lakewood community disappeared, it would take over two years for the community to find answers. Bruce and Jana Koklich, both 41, were a power couple. In August of 2001, they had been married for 11 years, and together they had lucrative careers as realtors operating the REMAX College Park office in Long Beach, California. They also operated a software development company they started in 1997 called Amos. They lived in the upscale Lakewood Country Club, and Jana was the daughter of former state senator Paul Carpenter. By the way, Paul Carpenter served jail time in 1993, I believe it was. He was convicted of obstruction of justice and money laundering, and he fled to Costa Rica, where he was captured and brought back. And I think he spent like a little over seven years in uh, a federal prison. Wow. Yeah. Now, everybody knows if you flee, you go to Panama. That's what Prison Break taught me. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to know. Thanks. On Friday morning, August 17th, 2001, Jana Koklich and a close friend, Mimi Angelini, who Jana had known for approximately 13 years, worked out together with their trainer, Dean Castales. Mimi operated a skincare business, and Jana Koklich went there three times a month for facials and massages. This particular Friday, the two women were excited because they were going to a concert that night. That same morning after her workout with Mimi, Jana went into her real estate office. While there, she told her co-worker, Laura Roman, about her weekend plans. This included two concerts, one Friday night and one Saturday. Laura noted the Saturday concert was on the company calendar. Friday evening, Mimi picked up Jana at her home at 4.45 p.m. and they went to dinner at Frenchie's Restaurant. They then went to an Eric Clapton concert in Los Angeles at the Staples Center. During dinner, Jana discussed her appointment for a massage the next day at Mimi's salon and also discussed their tentative dinner plans for Sunday. And because Jana was going to work out at 7 a.m. the next morning, Jana and Mimi shared a single glass of wine. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, no, you're not. <laughs> but, but seriously, who does that? Apparently they do. I know. This is very disciplined. I know. Actually, they're working out. They're getting massages. They're yeah. splitting wine. They're, they're better people than we are sometimes. Sure. When Mimi took Jana home, all of the lights were off in the house. Mimi waited outside while Jana entered the house and gave the signal that she was okay, which is turning on and off the lights and opening and closing the front door. So the concert was Friday night, and on Monday, August 20th, 2001, Bruce Koklich arrived at work by 7 a.m. 
He had a funeral to attend that morning and eventually left the office between 9.30 and 10 to carpool to the funeral with a Wells Fargo manager. That morning, he returned a call from Gianna's friend Mimi saying, Got your message. Finally found your phone number. I'm on the way to a funeral. Jana's home getting dressed. You can probably find her there. Bruce also returned a phone call to Mrs. Carpenter, Jana's mother. She had called looking for Jana three times that morning. Bruce informed Mrs. Carpenter that Jana should be at the office by now as he had kissed Jana goodbye that morning before he left and she was going to take a shower. Laura Roman, the office worker with whom Jana had shared her weekend plans, got to the office at 8.45 on Monday morning and noticed Jana's Saturday plans for the concert were no longer on the company calendar. Jana did not show up for work that morning, and when her husband Bruce returned from the funeral around 11.30 a.m., he asked his employees if she had arrived at work. He also asked if they had heard from her, and both answers were no. When no one could provide any information, he became panicky. At that time, Bruce called Jana's mother, Mrs. Carpenter, and told her Jana was missing and he was going to go out and look for her. 20 to 30 minutes later, Bruce left the office saying he was going to go see if Jana was at home. He took with him Christopher Batosin. Christopher was a part-time software engineer for Amos, and he worked out of the Coakliches Realty office. When Christopher and Bruce got to the home, Jana was not there. But Bruce played a strange voicemail message for Christopher. According to court records, it says, quote, Jana, you know who this is. Give me a call back, unquote. Bruce told Christopher that this spooked Jana and that there were other calls from the same person, but this was the only one that had been recorded. At 12.30 on Monday, Bruce called Jana's personal trainer, asking if he knew her whereabouts. The personal trainer, Dean, informed Bruce that she had missed her session on Saturday and that he had not seen her since. Bruce then called a friend from the Long Beach Police Department who checked into accidents and local hospitals, but he came up empty. About 3.30 p.m. on Monday, the day that Jana never came to work, Mrs. Carpenter called Bruce for an update. He informed his mother-in-law that he had reported Jana missing and that the deputies had just arrived. Mrs. Carpenter went to the Coakliches' home. When she arrived, she asked Bruce what was going on, and he responded, I have loved your daughter since the day I met her. That afternoon, sheriff deputies took a formal missing persons report, and by 5 p.m., people who knew Jana were trickling into the house. Bruce played the voicemail message for them that he had played for Christopher and stated that his fear was that the mystery caller may be responsible for her disappearance. None of them recognized the voice. By 8 p.m. that evening, Mimi and Mrs. Carpenter were at the Coakledge home. Mimi was extremely frustrated because nobody was doing anything to actually find Jana. So Bruce and Chris Batozin went door to door in the neighborhood. They encountered a sheriff deputy who was off duty named Howard Cooper. 
Mr. Cooper heard the story, was concerned, and accompanied them back to the residence. The five of them searched for clues in the home and found nothing. So here we have Christopher Batozin, we have Bruce, we have Mimi, we have Mrs. Carpenter, and we have this off-duty sheriff's deputy looking at the house for any kind of clues. Even though they found nothing, the deputy, Howard Cooper, had a bad feeling that this was not going to end well, and he placed a call to L.A. County Sheriff's homicide to suggest that this may be more than a missing person. Do you know, did he tell Bruce that he was doing this, or do you think this was just done separately? I honestly have no idea. I have no idea. I think what drew his attention to a problem was that the home alarm was set that morning, but her purse and her car were missing. And so he's thinking like, okay, maybe she left voluntarily with someone or met with foul play after she left the house. One day after she's reported missing, on Tuesday, August 21st, two Lakewood Sheriff's deputies interviewed Bruce, asking about his weekend with Jana. Bruce told the detectives that he and Jana had mutually decided not to work that weekend because the prior weekend they'd had a conference and they were both really tired. And they didn't want to answer the phone because they had been receiving the weird phone calls. Asked if he had anything to do with Jana's disappearance, Bruce said no. He said Jana was the love of his life and they had a great marriage. Jana had slept in Saturday and decided to skip her personal training session. Instead, Jana and Bruce took walks and went bike riding. These two Lakewood Sheriff's detectives who interviewed Bruce then referred the case to homicide detectives. At about 3.30 p.m., L.A. Sheriff's Detective Davis went to the Coakliches' house. Detective Davis looked at the doors and windows and did not find any signs of forced entry. According to Detective Davis, two handguns were found under the Coakliches' mattress, a handgun was found in Bruce's car, and numerous guns were found throughout the Coakliches' house. Tuesday at approximately 7 p.m., Detectives Sheehy and Davis interviewed Christopher Batozin and Mrs. Carpenter, both of them saying it was totally out of character for Jana not to answer her phone, return phone calls, or miss appointments. Batozin also said to detectives that he hadn't seen Bruce make any phone calls to his wife once he reported her missing. At a press conference on Tuesday, Bruce Koklich offered a $100,000 reward for the safe return of his wife. He cried and then turned to Chris Batozin and said, there, I cried for you on national television. At that point, Bruce had also hired an attorney and hired an investigator. My assumption is he just wanted to make sure all of his bases were covered. I mean, the detectives, they had more than just this one case. My guess is he wanted to make sure that Jana's best interests were being held. So the following Monday, one week from Jana's disappearance, Mimi was interviewed by detectives. Now, she had previously spoken with detectives at the Coakledge home, but she was taken in for a formal interview a week later. During the interview, she was told by detectives that Bruce said that he and his wife Jana had been going for walks that weekend and ignoring their phones. Mimi told them that she did not think that that was accurate because Jana had shin splints and walking would have hurt her too much. Mimi also mentioned to detectives the dark spots that she saw on the carpet in Jana's bedroom. She noticed these dark spots on the night she went missing 
when the five of them were searching for clues in the house. At the time, nothing registered in Mimi's mind as being nefarious. However, with a week to ruminate on things, she realized she should mention this to the detectives. These spots on the carpet turned out to be Jana's blood. Now, nine days after Jana went missing, her white Nissan Pathfinder was found. It was abandoned in a garage off of an alley. It looked like it had been put in someone's spot. Like and maybe they weren't there and just didn't notice it was there? Something like that. Okay. I mean, honestly, it looked like it would have been assigned to a particular apartment unit. So, a gentleman named Richard Vargas saw the news report about officers finding the vehicle. So, he called the police because he told them that around midnight on Sunday... This is Sunday, August 19th. So the day before that she was reported missing? Correct. Okay. That he saw a Caucasian male sitting in a white SUV in an alley in Signal Hill. At the time, Vargas thought the SUV looked like a Ford Explorer, but later confirmed that it looked like Jana's Pathfinder. Vargas told officers that it was unusual to see a Caucasian male in this area at this time of night, and there were not many Caucasian males in the area. He considered the area unsafe and not many people hung around the alley in the middle of the night. He did not see the driver's face, but noted that he was wearing a long-sleeved white business shirt with cuffs rolled up. After Vargas passed the vehicle, the driver erratically pulled the car out from where it was parked. Another woman named Ruthie Silverand saw the story about the Pathfinder as well, and she remembered seeing the vehicle before. On Monday morning, August 20th, so again, this was the day she was reported missing, Ruthie Silverin saw Jana's white Nissan Pathfinder parked in front of her house. It was a very high crime area of Long Beach, and as she and her sister left her house sometime between 8 and 9 a.m., Ruthie noticed that the Pathfinder's windows were down, the keys were in the ignition, and a purse was sitting on the passenger seat. Ruthie looked at the vehicle and laughed and told her sister that it looked like a setup. Oh, it totally did. Yeah, totally. After seeing Jana's Pathfinder on television, Ruthie then questioned her 14-year-old son, who recently had a cell phone in his possession that she did not purchase for him. He admitted that he and his friend Michael saw the car unlocked, took money out of the purse and split it, then threw the purse on top of the building across the street. The boys then sold the cell phone they found in the vehicle. At about 4.30 or 5 p.m., the boys saw an Asian or Mexican male drive away in the car. Ruthie then went to a minister, Reverend Bryant, and told him about her son's role in taking the purse. The reverend in turn contacted sheriff's deputies. The sheriff's department then retrieved the purse from the apartment building across the street where the boys had thrown it. Inside, they found a wallet with Janice driver's license, credit cards, and miscellaneous other items in the purse. The sheriff's department revealed to Reverend Bryant that there was also a gun in the vehicle. Reverend Bryant then made inquiries in the area and offered a $150 reward that led to the recovery of Jana's gun. There was no evidence of a break-in at the Coklich home or evidence that Jana had been abducted from her home. 
The circumstances under which the SUV was found did not suggest that Jana had been the victim of a carjacking. Her SUV was apparently left in a very high crime area of Long Beach. A reasonable inference from the evidence led detectives to believe that the vehicle was left there in the hope that it would be stolen and that the person who stole it would be blamed for Jana's disappearance. An unreasonable inference from the evidence is that Jana had been the victim of a carjacking. It is highly improbable that a carjacker would take a car, kill the car's driver and dispose of the body, then leave the car with keys in the ignition and a purse full of money in the front seat. Significantly, forensic technicians found two feathers, which appeared to be from a pillow, and Jana's blood inside her vehicle, suggesting a violent explanation for her disappearance. Deputies combed the oil fields on more than one occasion that surrounded Signal Hill near the area where the vehicle was discovered. They never discovered Jana's body. On January 31st, 2002, about five months after Jana's disappearance, Bruce was arrested at his office by Detective Peavy of the L.A. County Sheriff's Homicide Unit. Bruce was charged with Jana's murder, and the judge set his bail at $1 million, for which he posted a bond. Bruce Kokelich pled not guilty to the charges, and trial began on February 18, 2003. The trial was three weeks long, but eventually on March 6th, Bruce Kokelich took the stand in his own defense. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times by journalist Jose Cardenas, during his testimony, Bruce said of Jana, there's nobody that I loved more. And the defense attorney, whose name was Henry Salcedo, showed the jury numerous pictures and cards that suggested an affectionate relationship between his client and Jana. Bruce also told the jury in detail about the in vitro fertilization process that the couple used to try to have a child. He denied that he told his wife, who wanted children, that he did not want to adopt. They simply hadn't gotten around to the process yet. At the trial, Bruce Koklich admitted to having prior sexual encounters, some at massage parlors, saying they didn't count because they were not love interests. And he said they happened years before her disappearance. Would he have felt the same way if she had been doing that with guys who weren't love interests? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I do. I have a feeling with him it's a one-way street. Exactly. The prosecutor confronted Bruce with tax documents that showed the couple were operating numerous rental properties at a loss. She also brought out the fact that there was a $1 million life insurance policy. But at the end of the day, the prosecutor was unsuccessful. On March 7th, 2003, the judge declared a mistrial with seven jurors being in favor of guilt and five being in favor of acquittal. In another article in the Los Angeles Times by the same journalist, Jose Cardenas, apparently the jury said they were bothered by the lack of motive and physical evidence. Among things that the prosecution could not produce was the victim's body or the murder weapon. Some jurors also said that during closing arguments, 
the prosecution had not explained clearly how each piece of circumstantial evidence added up to Bruce Koklich's guilt. That's actually really surprising because I would think for, especially for a district attorney, they know what they need to do. They know that they need to lay it all out. They need to take the jurors step by step by step. I know, but I'm sure it's, you know, whatever. You do your best and it doesn't always turn out right. But they say that a mistrial educates the prosecutor. Well, of course it does, because now they know that they screwed up and where they screwed up. Right. And the thing is, they get a second bite at the apple. So in this case, the district attorney decided to pursue a second trial, which began six months later in September of 2003. And in this article by the LA Times that I was just referencing, it says, unlike the first trial, during Tuesday's closing arguments, Prosecutor Hunter, who was the same person who did the first trial, used a projector to explain to jurors how evidence such as emails, pictures, etc., connected to the case. So again, the first trial was a serious education for her, and she realized because there's nobody that she has to walk through them piece by piece by piece, and what are the reasonable inferences that you can draw? You know, and she also pointed out it's beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond every doubt. During the second trial, Dean Casales testified. He was Jana's personal trainer. He was the one who was supposed to have a training session with her the morning following the Friday night concert. Where they shared one drink of wine exactly. or one glass of wine. <laughs> Again, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure we could hang out with them, but I'm right. sure they're lovely people. <laughs> exactly. Jana was supposed to have a 7 a.m. training session. This trainer called her at 7.03. And he said he knew something was wrong because he had never known her to cancel a training session or be late for their scheduled appointment. A girl after my own heart. Uh-huh. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm this, always on time. Well, actually, you are on time. Yeah. You're, you're a very punctual person. <laughs> so the trainer called her home, left a message, and never heard back. Yeah, and- I wasn't talking about the trainer, just to be clear. <laughs> Kathy had right for doubt on that one, but in terms of the punctuality, yeah, exactly. that was all me. I thought you were saying like your training <laughs> sessions. Okay. Hey. So anyway, so the trainer never received a call back on Saturday. You know, he never received any call at all until Monday when Bruce called him to see if he knew Gianna's whereabouts. Also, Mimi Wait, tested- I'm sorry. He called the personal trainer to find out where his wife was? Correct. All right. Did you not listen earlier? Well, <laughs> I did, but why would he call the personal trainer? I, who knows? Anyway, so Mimi also testified, and Mimi testified that Saturday, Jana was supposed to have a 2 p.m. massage. By 2.15, Jana had not arrived, and Mimi called her cell phone and her home phone and her work phone. She left messages on her home phone and her cell phone, and then she also called Jana's husband, and she never heard back from him until Monday. Mimi testified that the phone call from Bruce on Monday morning stood out as odd, because she can count on one hand the times he called her salon ever. Mrs. Carpenter, Jana's mother, also testified that on Sunday, the 20th, remember, she was reported missing on Monday, Mm -hmm. she and Jana had plans to see a movie. Her mother called Jana's cell and her home phone numerous times, leaving multiple messages. Mrs. Carpenter also called Jana's husband, Bruce, multiple times, but never heard back from him. After Mrs. Carpenter called Jana's home three times Monday morning, she eventually received that call from Bruce, 
Okay. You may remember Bruce told her that Jana should be at the office. Mrs. Carpenter found the phone call on Monday odd because it was the first time Bruce had ever returned a phone call from her. Also, Jana's father, the former state senator, Paul Carpenter, lived in Texas at this time. He was suffering from terminal colon cancer, and his family knew it. Jana was supposed to visit him the following week, but she never called him to finalize plans, which was extremely, extremely odd. And so sad. Yeah, totally. That's terrible. So basically all of these witnesses were called to talk about how punctual and consistent Jana was. She, she, like Mimi described her as being very methodical. She would book her appointments weeks in advance and never miss them. So I'm sure her husband was not expecting her hairstylist, her manicurist, her personal trainer to say the same thing about her punctuality and consistency. But that just tells you how little he knew about his wife, because isn't that something he should have known about her? Yeah, I don't know. She apparently lived a very disciplined life. And so the fact that she missed these appointments and the people with whom she had appointments had known her for quite some time, the sheriff's department took the investigation very seriously, very quickly. Also, these witnesses testified that within days of her disappearance, Bruce called them all trying to get them to admit that she had missed appointments without calling in the past. He basically told them, hey, you're making me look bad. He's Russ Gorman. Yeah, really, seriously, trying to manipulate witnesses. Right. Yeah. This is the Amy St. Laurent story in episode seven and eight. I'm impressed that you remember the numbers of the episodes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also very punctual in case you hadn't heard. (laughs) I'm less so. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Also testifying for the prosecution was Janet Baird. Janet had been friends with Jana Koklich for over 25 years, and the two women made a point of going out at least once a month. On Monday night, the day that Bruce reported his wife missing, Bruce told Janet that he had left the house at 6.30 that morning and that he had kissed his wife goodbye. Apparently, she was getting in the shower. He said that Jana never arrived at work and was missing. Bruce asked Janet if he knew where his wife was. Let's see. He called her at about 5.30 on Monday. So he had only reported his wife missing, you know, like, let's say three hours prior. Right. So Janet testified that she thought the behavior was very odd because Jana had only been gone a few hours. She figured there could be a reasonable explanation for it. But Bruce was sobbing into the phone. Well, okay. So to be fair, when this happened... True crime podcasts weren't really popular, so he probably didn't know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He hadn't learned any lessons. Right. Like we have. There was also a neighbor who testified named Marguerite Ginder. She was Koklich's next door neighbor and a friend. And she called on Tuesday and said, hey, what's going on? Because he had gone door to door the night before. Have you found your wife? And he told her, no, Jana had not come home yet. But you remember seeing me outside your kitchen window walking with my wife on Saturday or Sunday, right? She was like, no, no, I don't. He's like, yeah, you do. We were walking. You were looking out your window and you saw us. And she said, no, no, I didn't. So he became, you know, he became upset with her and ended the conversation. He's a sociopath. Exactly. Because his theory is this. His theory is she went missing on Monday morning when I was at the funeral. Right. Obviously, he wants to, you know, have her go missing when he has a million people who can attest to his whereabouts. Right. But now he needs all these people to acquiesce and agree with what he's saying. And I can actually see that where you get somebody and you're like, well, right. We walked in front of your kitchen and we waved and you waved back. Remember? Remember? And you're like, remember? Oh, yeah, well, yeah I, I guess I did. Even right. if you don't remember, you don't want to be rude and say you didn't. Right. Like a weaker person would be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A weaker person like Jason, who was a roommate of Russ Corbin's. <laughs> During the defense part of the trial, the attorneys tried to show that people saw Jana on Sunday. If Jana had disappeared, it was while Bruce was at the funeral, so there was no way he could have been responsible for her disappearance. Donna Baker, who was the Coakledge's neighbor, said that she saw Jana's white pathfinder in the Coakledge's garage between 8 and 8.30 a.m. on Sunday, August 19th, or Monday, August 20th. She wasn't sure. Now, remember, the SUV was seen Sunday night in a bad part of Signal Hill, the Long Beach neighborhood, with a white man driving, and it was also seen parked Monday morning, open with the keys in the ignition. On Sunday, August 19th, Alan Radcliffe and his wife, Arita Lapierre, went to their hair salon, which was located near the Coakledge's Remax office. Radcliffe and Lapierre parked in the back of their salon And between 10 and 11 a.m., Radcliffe said that he saw a white SUV that he thought was a Pathfinder. He also saw a Caucasian woman 
between 30 and 40 years old who had shoulder length, light blonde hair and, quote, rather muscular legs, end quote. The woman was wearing a dark skirt, a white blouse and dark shoes. They assumed it was Jana, but they admitted that they'd never seen her face. Sandy Baresi also testified. She worked for an office of Wells Fargo Home Mortgage that shared the same office building with the Coakliches Remax office. At about 9 a.m. on Sunday, August 19th, Sandy went into her office. She had parked her blue Ford Windstar van in the back of the building. Although Sandy was six inches shorter than Jana and heavier, she was wearing clothing similar to those described by the salon owners, Alan Radcliffe and his wife, Arita Lapierre. When Sandy left the building around 11 a.m., she testified that there were no cars in the parking lot and she did not see Jana's car there either. The defense presented evidence that Chris Batozin was responsible for Jana's disappearance. A week before her disappearance, Batozin and Jana went to a convention together in Las Vegas, Nevada to promote Amos. Remember, this is the software company that was in the process of being developed. They drove in Jana's Pathfinder and Batozin had brought a pillow with him. Apparently, Batozin had been promised 1 million shares of Amos stock, but received only 100,000 shares. Batozin also received a monthly salary of $1,000 for his work at Amos. Now, back in 2001, that still wasn't a lot of money. Yeah, but he worked part-time. He had, he had other gigs going on. Okay. So. Batozin was speaking with a company called Nabucco about funding Amos. Batozin owned about 11% of Nabucco's stock, and on the Nabucco funding application, Bruce listed Batozin as the person who could complete the project if Bruce or Jana became incapacitated. Nabucco never funded Amos. After the deputies had searched and photographed the Coakliches' house, Batozin asked permission of one of the detectives to remove a down pillow he had brought with him to the house. Batozin spoke with detectives from the sheriff's department numerous times. Now, Batozin's girlfriend, as well as an employee of the Coakliches Realty Office, believed that Batozin was, quote, nervous and upset and agitated, end quote, after Jana had disappeared. Batozin's girlfriend actually told a defense investigator that she was 100% certain that she had not spent the night with Batozin that Sunday night. The defense also pointed out that the L.A. Sheriff's Department did not seriously look at the people who stole from Jana's vehicle or who took her car for a joyride. Now, without a body, the prosecution had to prove that Jana was in fact dead. After all, Bruce was being charged with murder, too. They did this by showing that her life abruptly stopped and there was no evidence of any transaction, cell phone calls or verified activity after she was last seen by Mimi on Friday night when they went to the Eric Clapton concert. They also introduced evidence that the sheriff's department expended thousands of hours trying to locate Jana and performed due diligence searches for her in September 2001, June 2002, February 2003, and August 2003 without success. The Sheriff's Department efforts included searching door-to-door, contacting the media, distributing flyers in Long Beach, Lakewood, Los Angeles, searching an oil field, as we said earlier, near where her SUV was found, contacting the coroner's office, in fact, every coroner's office in Southern California, 
and conducting a nationwide search of DMV records. So the bottom line is these, among other things, were done. They did a thorough, thorough check, and everything pointed to the fact that there was zero activity after Mimi dropped her off on Friday. The prosecution admitted the physical evidence, which included the blood that matched Jana's that was found on the carpet in her bedroom, as well as the blood that was found in the vehicle that matched her. The two feathers, which appeared to be from a pillow, and missing bedsheets. One very important witness for the prosecution was the Coakliches maid, Consuelo Lopez. The day after Bruce Coakliche had reported his wife missing, he had asked Mrs. Carpenter, Jana's mom, to return to their house on Tuesday morning and inform the Coakliches' housekeeper, Consuelo Lopez, that Jana was missing. Bruce and Christopher Batozen, who had spent Monday night at the Coakliches' house, had to go to the office for a meeting. Consuelo Lopez was already at the Coakliches' house when Mrs. Carpenter had arrived that Tuesday morning. When Mrs. Carpenter told Lopez that Jana was missing, she replied, I thought something was wrong because things were out of place. It turns out that Consuelo had cleaned the Coakliches' house on Tuesdays and Fridays for nine years. And on Tuesdays, Consuelo cleaned the house and washed clothes, and on Fridays, she cleaned the house and cooked. People don't realize whether they're a maid, as she's described here, or cleaning people who come in from time to time. They see everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. According to Consuelo, on Tuesday, August 21st, the day after Bruce had reported Jana missing, everything was out of place in the Coakliches' kitchen. Also, there were no dirty dishes in the bedroom upstairs as there usually were, and Jana's nightgown was on the floor rather than in a cabinet as it usually was. When Consuelo had cleaned the Coakliches' house the prior Tuesday, she had changed the sheets and pillowcases on the bed in the master bedroom as she had done every Tuesday. Consuelo remembered that she had put matching patterned sheets and pillowcases on the Coakliches bed. Those sheets and pillowcases were still on the bed when she made the bed the following Friday. So remember, this is just four days prior to Jana's reported disappearance. In the nine years that Consuelo had worked for the Coakliches, she said the Coakliches had never changed their own sheets. That's a really critical piece of testimony there. And I'll be honest, it makes me a little jealous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hate that. Makes me a lot jealous. <laughs> so when Consuelo and Mrs. Carpenter looked in the master bedroom following Jana's disappearance, the matching pattern sheets were no longer on the bed. Instead, there was a single top sheet on the bed that was for a smaller bed and did not fit the Coakliches' king-size bed. There were also different pillowcases on the pillows. Mrs. Carpenter and Consuelo searched for, but could not find, the sheets and pillowcases that Consuelo had put on the bed the prior Tuesday. Jana's pillow and a towel were also missing. Now, at Bruce's first trial, the defense had presented a number of witnesses who, in different ways and to varying degrees, testified that the Coakliches appeared to have a very happy marriage. In rebuttal, the prosecution introduced evidence of instances of Bruce's marital infidelity prior to Jana's disappearance. The infidelity apparently consisted of engaging in sexual relations with a homeless woman in a vacant apartment, 
soliciting oral sex from women with whom he had a business relationship and passionately kissing a woman in the parking lot behind his office. Unbelievable. I have no (laughs) words. Like, I don't even know what to say to that. I know. Exactly. And by the way, the prosecution is not allowed to introduce these specific instances of bad conduct. However, the defense opened the door by saying their marriage was wonderful. Everything was perfect. La, 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 la. So the prosecution's like, oh, really? Now, I'm sure you didn't see this, and I know I didn't see this, but how did they find out about the homeless woman in a vacant apartment? You know what? Ten bucks says he bragged about it, but I have no idea. <laughs> I don't. I I'm, like, Honestly. I'm speechless. I go, Anyway, crazy. Now, an issue arose during this second trial as to the evidence of sexual improprieties after Jana went missing. The judge in the trial essentially held that they are relevant up to a certain period of time, maybe six months or so, to show behavior that's inconsistent with that of a grieving husband. Because disappeared and dead are two different things. Correct. So just because she's disappeared doesn't mean their marital vows don't still count. Correct. The prosecution was allowed to introduce evidence as to Bruce's sexual behavior immediately following his wife's death. I think that's fair. Now, this paved the way for a prosecution witness named Jennifer. Bruce had asked his mother-in-law, Mrs. Carpenter, to stay with him, saying that he was lonely. She told him she didn't want to after like a week. And he was like, no, no, please don't go. And she's like, okay. So finally, on September 7th, he told Mrs. Carpenter that he could get along without her and she could go home. So that weekend, the weekend of September 7th, Bruce took a trip to Sonora, California, where he visited his stepbrother, Daniel. And Daniel's 18-year-old daughter, his niece, Jennifer. Oh, God, please don't tell me this is going where I think it is. It is. (laughs) During his trip to Sonora, which is in Northern California, Bruce offered to let Jennifer stay at his house. He told his niece that he wanted someone to take care of him. He told her that she could go to school and that he would help her buy a car. Apparently, at the time, things were not going well for Jennifer, and she wanted to have a life for herself, so she agreed. So she told her dad she was going to move in with her quote-unquote uncle? Oh, no, no, no. Part of the deal was that she couldn't tell anyone that she was living with him, and she had to keep the windows shut, the blinds drawn, all this kind of nonsense. But she told her dad she was going to live with a friend in Stockton. Okay, ladies, if a guy you're with ever says this, run the other way. So during the trip from Sonora to Lakewood, Bruce pressured Jennifer for sex. Now, she's testifying to this at trial. That's a long trip. You're uh, looking it, at like seven hours, it's, it's eight a, hours. It's a long trip. Uh, yeah, that's if you're driving straight through. She couldn't recall specifically what Bruce had said to her, but he communicated to her that the reason he brought her to his house was to have sexual relations with her. So wait, he was 41 and she was eight. Well, actually, he would have been older than 41. No, no, no. He was 41 at the time. You're right. Yeah. She was 18. And she was his niece. I mean, technically not by blood, but for God's sake. still. Yeah. No, gross. So anyway, she arrives at his house and he shows her all of Jana's clothes. He says, you can use any of these. He gives her bras, bathing suits, all this stuff. And she's like, no, 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 thanks. I don't feel comfortable wearing Jana's clothes. And that's a total ick factor. Oh, for sure. Then then she says, hey, I want to take a shower. And he goes, okay, you can shower in the master bedroom. But by the way, 
the sliding door to the bathroom doesn't work, so you're going to have to keep the door open. Oh. I know. And although she preferred to shower in the guest bathroom, where, by the way, the door locked, she acquiesced to his preference. Well, and that's because he was a male authority figure to her. For sure. So anyway, after showering, he says to Jennifer, am I going to get some? Am I going to get some of that? So she lies to him and she says, hey, you know what? I'm pregnant. Hopefully, like, like she's trying to rebuff him. Later on, he went and bought a pregnancy test and made her take it. Shut up. Yes. And so she takes his pregnancy test. And of course, she's not pregnant. And his response was something like, good, now I could get you pregnant. Ew. I know. I know. So anyway, he just kept going at her and at her and at her. And how do you think her father would react to all this? Oh, that's not mentioned, is it? uh, No. I have to imagine he'd kill him. Oh, what dad wouldn't? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he tells her he wants her to sleep in his bed. And she says, as long as you don't touch me. I know. But of course, he He did. He tried to. Well, he tried to like bug her for sex. And then, then at some point while they were having this like ongoing, constant pursuit and her saying, no, 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 no. She finally tells him like, hey, you're my uncle. Your, your wife is missing. What would the family say if they knew this was happening? His response to her was. They wouldn't believe you. Exactly. Yep. They wouldn't believe you. Because I mean, honestly, 18 is still young. Exactly. So she stays with him until September 22nd when he drives her back to Sonora, but he doesn't drop her off at her family home. He basically is like, see ya, just drops her off in town. Seriously? Yes. Yes. But the day before that, things kind of exploded. What happens is he goes to work that morning. She goes to lay out by the pool. He comes home for lunch and they get into this huge fight. She's really upset. She drinks a substantial amount of alcohol, including a mixed drink that he had prepared for her the night before that she didn't drink. She passes out by the pool. When she wakes up, she's lying face down in his bed and the bottom of her two-piece bathing suit was pulled up and over to the side, sort of like one half of her suit was wedged over one butt cheek. She did not remember how she got there and she felt like she had been violated. So she goes to the bathroom and realizes the tampon that she had in her was missing. She confronts him and he admits to rubbing and touching her. So again, all of this is coming out during testimony at trial. You know, she should be really proud of herself, though, for testifying, because for as hard as it was for her to stay and put up with that crap, the fact that now she's actually testifying to it says a lot about her personal strength. Oh, I agree 100%. And she's testifying to it, you know, like a little over two years later. Right, so she's it's like not that 20. old. Exactly. No, it's, it's pretty fresh. When he drops her back off in Sonora, she goes to this place called the Mountain Women's Resource Center, which is a crisis center for women. And she tells them what happened to her. So they wind up calling the Sonora Police Department. Sonora police winds up calling L.A. County sheriffs. L.A. County sheriffs flies up there and interviews her. So this behavior occurred within three weeks of Jana's disappearance, and the investigators believe that this behavior was not consistent with that of a grieving man whose wife has disappeared. In addition to Jennifer's testimony at trial, two other women also testified about Bruce hitting on them inappropriately within a couple months following his wife's disappearance. Other than the I'm sick of my wife and want sexual freedom motive, perhaps finances were the motivation for murder. 
had Jana divorced Bruce, which by the way, there was speculation about that intention, but go ahead. Bruce would have suffered a serious financial loss. George Miller, who is a financial consultant, testified that the Coakliches earned $273,000 from their real estate business in the year leading up to Jana's disappearance. And they had $658,000 available to them at the end of August 2001 in the form of cash on hand, restricted cash, which is like cash that's invested in pensions, and available credit. The Coakliches also owned 21 properties in which they had equity of approximately $3.6 million. This is no chump change. No kidding. Yeah, 20 years ago, these people were pretty much rolling in it. I mean, that's good money now. Right, I was (laughs) going to say, I'll take that now. The prosecution presented evidence, however, that the Coakliches had recently borrowed money from Mrs. Carpenter. There was a $1 million life insurance policy on Jana, and shortly after her disappearance, Bruce asked one of her best friend's husbands, who was an attorney, how long someone had to be missing before they were presumed dead. Bruce Coakledge was convicted of murder two on October 7th, 2003. And murder two is the intentional killing of another person that's willful, but not premeditated. So in other words, the act was intentional, but it wasn't planned ahead of time. And so because there was blood in her bedroom, they're like, okay, something happened in the heat of the moment. Something. So this is like a crime of passion. That's kind of what they're saying. Is it the yes, the emotions, whatever got the better of him? And so he just lashed out. Right. That, that was kind of their theory. And on Friday, March 26, 2004, he was sentenced to 15 years to life. Gianna's father, State Senator Paul Carpenter died from colon cancer one week after Bruce was arrested in 2002. Mrs. Carpenter testified at trial during the penalty phase and said, there are no words to describe the loneliness I feel without Jana's presence in my life. It is especially devastating not to know where her body is so that we could have the comfort of a final goodbye to her. On November 30th, 2021, fewer than two weeks prior to this recording, Bruce Koklich, now 62 years of age, was denied parole for at least another three years. He will be able to have another hearing in 2024. In the meantime, he will remain incarcerated at the Chino Men's Colony in California. As of this recording... Jana's body has never been recovered. If you liked us, but only if you liked (laughs) us, (laughs) please leave a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on our socials at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, 
bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.